Right, we come to Exodus tonight, and quite interesting that we've already had a couple of spontaneous readings from it. <coughs> so, Exodus, uh, what does it mean? Um, the actual word is, is, is the Greek word, uh, which means exit or departure. So, basically, uh, you know, if you wanted to get it technically correct, the second book of the Bible is called Exit or Departure, but I guess Exodus sounds better, so presumably that's why the translation, you know, I mean, can you imagine it, you know, if you turn to, to Departure, chapter 3, I mean, it hasn't got a ring, has it? Or, you know, if we, you know, we're going to do a Bible study in Exit tonight, you know, the book of Exit now, so, so we'll stick to, to Exodus. And, uh, of course, it, it tells the story of um, Israel's deliverance from the uh, slavery of Egypt. Now, of course, this is a serialization, isn't it? And uh, so we better link it up with last week's exciting episode, um, where we, we left Israel, didn't we, um, having moved down into Egypt, Joseph having risen to great heights and become Pharaoh's number two. Um, and we actually saw that the book of Genesis um, ended with the death of um, Joseph around 1800 BC, so 1,800 years before Christ. And uh, we're going to be tonight in Exodus, seeing the actual Exodus from Egypt, and, and, and that happens around 1400 BC. So in actual fact, uh, tonight we're going to be, uh, well, we've got here the 400 years of slavery that the Lord told Abraham about in Genesis. Do you remember that? There was a prophecy from the Lord that, you know, Abraham would go into Egypt and that the people, you know, the nation that was to come to him would end up in uh, slavery for, for 400 years. And it's this, this period of time. And uh, so, so the actual grounds that um, Exodus covers, like, like the book, just a quick preview before we go into the individual chapters, um, is that we're going to be seeing tonight the actual deliverance of Israel from Egypt. Um, and we're going to be seeing them travelling through the wilderness as far as Mount Sinai. Uh, now, by the time we get to uh, the end of what's called the Pentateuch, I'll come back to that in one second, we're going to have seen the 40 years of the wandering in the wilderness. But tonight, we're just going to see the first few months. Um, I say Pentateuch, the, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, all right? They're called the Pentateuch because they form five, you know, Penta, five, five books. And they're the books written by Moses. You know, so Genesis was written by Moses, and this is, and, you know, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy are as well. And so what we're going to be seeing is Israel travelling into the wilderness for the first couple of months, up until Mount Sinai, when they receive the giving of the law or the Ten Commandments. Uh, then we're going to see uh, that it tells us about the, the plans for the tabernacle, which was where Israel were to worship in the wilderness. Um, we're going to see instructions concerning the priesthood, and the actual construction of the tabernacle and the institution of the actual priesthood. So that's, that's the ground that we're going to, to be covering in Exodus. That's, that's the ground that the book covers. Okay, right, well, let's, let's start chapter at a time, chapter 1. And uh, the situation we've got is that Jacob and his sons are now long dead. And you remember, Israel ended up um, in Egypt because Joseph, you know, arose to be number two, and, like, you know, the little nation, because really all it was at the end of Genesis was a, an extended family, really. And uh, so they go down into Egypt and, and everything is, is really happy and, uh, you know, it was a great ending. And, uh, but, but what's happened now is that 400 years have passed. 
And um, what's transpired in those 400 years is that there have been a succession of pharaohs who have long since forgotten Joseph. You know, I mean, he's just dim history. Um, and, and, and of course, what's happened is that the, the, the Israelites have grown in numbers. I mean, they're a separate nation, but they were living in Egypt, and they've grown in numbers, as a nation does. And uh, these pharaohs, through the 400 years, who knew nothing about um, you know, Jacob and Joseph and that, perceived them to be a threat. Because, I mean, after all, if you had a, a, another nation growing up within your nation, you know, becoming stronger and more and more numerical, you might perceive them as being a threat. And so, therefore, the policy that Egypt introduced under the pharaohs is that the Israelites were declared to be a nation of slaves. And so they were enslaved, and they became slaves. And their lot was not a happy one. It was pretty awful. And uh, in chapter 1, you've got this lovely little thing. I mean, I mean, it's sort of definitely true of Israel, because the world has never got rid of the Israelites. I mean, oh boy, ever since Israel came into being, the world because Satan runs it and Satan hates the Jews, has been trying to get rid of Israel, never been able to do it. And in chapter 1 you get this thing that, that you know, the more, you know, the more that kind of the Jews were oppressed, the more they multiplied in numbers. You know, you've got, of course, the thing there that, you know, I mean, very possibly, you know, I mean, the only thing they had to look forward to in the evening was making love to their wives. And so, you know, I mean, it was like rabbits, you know, and, and I mean, these little, you know, sort of Jews were being born all over the place. And of course, there's a bit of a spiritual picture there, too, because, I mean, if things are going against you, if it's tough, and it was tough for them being enslaved, if it's tough, it, it tends to drive you to the Lord. And the more it drives you to the Lord, the more fruitful you are. And there's a lovely little picture there. So the point is that, that the more that the pharaohs and the Egyptians oppress Israel, the more they multiply and the bigger their numbers actually get. And so eventually the pharaoh decided in chapter 1 of Genesis that, uh, that the policy needed to change and that the Israeli threat was becoming uh, far too great. And so therefore the policy was introduced that the midwives should kill every Jewish male baby. So, you know, sort of like, you know, the Jews would have been attended sometimes by the Egyptian midwives, but sometimes their own ones. And uh, the law was made that uh, all babies born to the Jews, boys, were to be put to death. In chapter 2, we have the introduction of the hero of this book and the ensuing ones in the Pentateuch, and it's Moses. And uh, Moses was born to a Jewish mum. He was a Jew. And, uh, but in order to facilitate his escape, so that he wasn't killed as a baby. What his mum does, she gets this little papyrus basket, you know, what we call today a Moses basket, and floats him down the Nile, you know, in order to save him. And uh, what happens, and of course you can see God's hand in this, is, uh, you know, the palace, Pharaoh's palace, the Nile ran alongside it, and Pharaoh's daughter was out one day for a walk by the river, and lo and behold, she finds this little baby um, in, in this basket and uh, adopts him. So, you know, Moses is, 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 is now destined to be brought up by Pharaoh's daughter. But more than that, uh, Pharaoh's daughter requests to some of the Jewish midwives that they go and uh, bring in kind of like a home, you know, like a babysitter or, you know, sort of a, a nanny for Moses. And so what they do is they go and get Moses' actual mum. And Pharaoh's daughter employs Moses' actual mum to be her nanny. So Moses is brought up by his own mother, but in the palace with Pharaoh's daughter being his official mum. And, uh, you know, so you really see the Lord's hand preparing, um, you know, for, for Moses to, um, you know, sort of like to deliver the people as he was destined to do. And um, 
then in chapter two it skips to when Moses is grown up. So now we skip a few years and he's an adult. And um, he knew what God had called him to do. He knew that he was really Jewish. He knew what God's calling was, that he was going to deliver Israel from Egypt. And uh, classic example of, uh, you know, sort of like moving out in your own strength, you know, doing God's will for him. Because what happens is that, you know, he sees an Egyptian beating up a Jew. And, uh, and so what Moses does, he intervenes and he, he kills the Egyptian. And, um, but the point is, uh, although he, you know, the Bible says he looked this way and he looked that way to make sure no one saw him do it, the problem was he didn't look up. If he had looked up, the Lord would have said, don't do it, Moses, you see, but Moses wasn't looking up. And, and, and in actual fact, the next day the news was out and everybody knew that Moses had killed an Egyptian. And so therefore he had to flee because now he was wanted as a murderer and so he had to actually clear out. So, uh, you know, this is the fruit of doing our own thing. You know, you think, oh, I know what God's will is, so off, off you go to do it. And, and of course, it, it, it duly goes very wrong, doesn't it? And uh, so now he's fleeing from Pharaoh who wants him dead. And um, he flees to Midian, to a place called Midian, and um, he ends up living with um, the family of, of a priest. And uh, this, this priest is called Gershom. Um, sorry, this priest is called Ruel, or Jethro. He has two names in the Bible. And uh, Moses marries his daughter, who was called Zipporah. So he sort of gets married and he starts raising a family. And he has a son there called Gershom. And, um, and basically, this chapter now covers 40 years, all right, of Moses just in Midian, you know, round and about the area, working as a shepherd. And what was interesting is that during this 40 years, all right, he's a shepherd of literal sheep all over the wilderness that he was a bit later on going to lead Israel through. So during this 40 years of just tending sheep, He's doing it covering the ground that he was later going to lead Israel through on their way to the Promised Land. And uh, so, of course, you've, you've got the principle there, and we've seen it before in studies, that you can actually only lead people where you yourself have been. And so, as a result of him having, you know, sort of killed this, you know, Egyptian, he has to flee. But he flees into the wilderness where he is eventually going to be leading Israel for another 40 years that are to follow. Then, in chapter 3, we have the end of his 40 years working as a shepherd in the wilderness, and we have the story of the burning bush, and now God speaks to him out of the burning bush and um, sort of tells him that the time now has come for him to go back to Pharaoh and to um, deliver God's people. And uh, in chapter 4, we get Moses' reaction to this, and uh, it's, it's, it's interesting to see the effect that God's dealings have in someone's life, because... Moses is, is, is now a broken man. Now, I mean, 40 years earlier, you know, he, he was very cocky, very self-confident. It was, all oh, right, I'm, I'm off to do God's will. And, of course, he killed an Egyptian, and, and it all, you know, sort of, like, goes wrong. But uh, now, now God appears to him out of the burning bush and says, right, now's the time. You, you, you moved a bit out of time 40 years ago, Moses, but now is the time to go to Pharaoh. And now Moses is terrified at the very thought of it. And uh, he, 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 he lists 100 reasons why, um, you know, he thinks that, you know, that God's got the wrong man. And, um, you know, so, so the pendulum has swung the other way. You see, rather than being cocky, Mo Moses has a far greater understanding of himself, and, and, and now he's kind of very loath to, you know, to be the channel of God working. And, uh, you know, but, you know, the Lord works a couple of miracles and sort of persuades him 
that it would be in his own best interest to go. <laughs> of course, God, God's like that, isn't he? And of course, when he starts working miracles around you, there's not, not really much you can do. And, uh, but, but the one concession that God makes is that Moses says, look, I've got to take my brother Aaron with me. I'm not doing this on my own with you. And, and so the Lord allows Aaron to kind of be like his, his right-hand man, to kind of hold, hold his hand a bit, see. And uh, so what he does is he gets his family, like Zipporah and Gershom and blah, blah, blah. And uh, they, they, they travel down to Egypt, um, you know, God having told now him, him and Aaron what exactly it is that they've got to tell Pharaoh. So, so they're off now to Egypt to have a word in Pharaoh's ear, which, which he didn't do, but the Lord was with them. So off they went to have a word of... Um, you know, in Pharaoh's ear. And it's, it's while they're on their way to Pharaoh that you get this, this really extraordinary little story when uh, God kind of confronts Moses on the road and threatens to kill him. And um, Zipporah, uh, you know, sort of like, you know, sort of like steps in and, and calls him a bridegroom of blood and, and it's a really weird story. And what is actually behind it, it's all to do with circumcision. And what it's to do with is that Moses, who is now actively beginning his ministry as the deliverer of Israel, all right? And Moses well knew that the sign of the covenant to Abraham was circumcision. Moses has not yet circumcised Gershom. See? And that's what it's about. And so Zipporah, his wife, intervenes and, you know, sort of like circumcises the son and sort of like, you know, chucks the foreskin and, you know, and says, you're a bridegroom of blood. And the Lord steps back. And it was, you know, didn't actually kill him. And of course, it's, it's a picture here that there was something desperately blatant, undone in Moses' life that he hadn't done. He should have done it and he hadn't. And of course the point is, especially if you're called to leadership, then, then, then there's a much higher personal standard. And so that, that's what this little story is all about, you know, that Moses had to, to, to make good what he'd left undone in his own life in regards to obedience to the Lord. So that over, remember they're still on their way to see Pharaoh, they, they have a meeting with the elders of Israel in Egypt. They gather all the, you know, like the elders of the people and uh, they fill them in and they say, look, you know, God has told us that the time of deliverance is coming. And of course the point is that, you know, the Israelites, though oppressed and those slaves, they, they knew about the prophecy, um, you know, to Abraham and they knew that the prophecy from the Lord was that they were going to be in bondage and slavery for 400 years and they knew that the 400 years was up. You know, so I mean, you know, they just have a word and say, look, you know, the time's coming and this is what's going to happen, blah, blah, blah. Now then, in chapter 5, we actually now have Moses and Aaron move on to Pharaoh. And uh, they, they take the word of the Lord to Pharaoh, which is basically, you know, God says, let my people go. Boom, boom, Pharaoh, you've got your orders from the Lord. Let Israel go. Now, the result of this is that Pharaoh, who gets a bit miffed at this, oppresses the Israelites even more. And, uh, you know, he tells the taskmasters to treat them even worse than they were before. And, uh, you know, so as a result of Moses and Aaron intervening here, uh, you know, is Israel's lot in Egypt is, is now harsher than it was before. And uh, so, so now Moses and Aaron are, are in deep trouble with the very people that they've come to help, because all the Israelites and the elders who, who now want to have a word with Moses and Aaron, they blame them for the mess that they're now in. And, uh, you know, I mean, sort of like, if you do end up, you know, in a, you know, God leading you, and particularly in a kind of leadership position, I mean, don't expect any thanks for it. I mean, 
they didn't get any thanks here because I mean the, their first intervention led to what looked like everything going wrong, and and of course they they, they they just got into trouble from everyone, and you know and of course all the Israelites they're they're moaning away now at uh, Moses and Aaron, and uh, so what you might call not 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 a very good start to their ministry here, and uh, but in in chapter six the Lord sends them back to Pharaoh, he says well go back and tell him again, and uh, so. Off they go. And then the rest of chapter 6 is taken up with uh, the genealogy of Moses and Aaron. And you know, we saw last week that obviously it's, all the genealogies are really important. So you get one here of Moses and Aaron. And then in chapter 7, um, they've been sent back to Pharaoh for a second time. Um, Moses, who kind of like gives up the ghost a bit now by way of speaking, so he's already told God that he stutters. And, uh, you know, he's of weak speech. And, and, and so now he, he really bottles it and says, Lord, you've got to, you've got to let Aaron do the talking. I mean, I can't, I can't do it. And so God gives in to him on this. says, OK, right, OK, I'll tell you what needs to be said. You tell Aaron and Aaron will do the talking. So, so you know, I mean, Moses is really, you know, shaking in his boots and falling to bits all over the place here. And uh, off they go to Pharaoh. Moses at least feeling a bit better about the fact that it's Aaron who is actually going to do the talking. And, um, and what you get in this particular meeting that they had with, 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 with Pharaoh is that you end up with a, a contest of miracles between Moses and Aaron and uh, the magicians um, in Pharaoh's court, because the Egyptians were very, very occultic and uh, you know, Pharaoh had his own personal sorcerers. And uh, so what happens is, to, to, to illustrate the point that God was with them to Pharaoh, um, Aaron he, he, he throws his staff down, you know, the staff, the big stick that shepherds tended to have. And he, he threw it down and it became a snake. So it's sort of there, you know, sort of like crawling around on the floor. And uh, him having done that, Pharaoh's magicians promptly did the same. So, so Aaron has thrown his staff down and it's become a snake. And the sorcerers of Pharaoh, uh, they, they, they've chucked their staffs down and, uh, and they've become snakes as, as well. But... Uh, what happens is that Aaron's snake then eats the sorcerer's snakes. See? So Aaron has thrown his staff down, it's become a snake. The magicians of Pharaoh, they do the same, and their staffs become snakes. But Aaron's snakes eat their snakes. So, so you know, sort of like, kind of, very much 15 love to the Lord there. And uh, so you've got this contest now that um, starts. And it's at this point that you get the introduction of the ten plagues, the, 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 you know, the, the ten famous plagues that come upon Egypt as a result of Moses and Aaron uh, you know, going to Pharaoh and telling him to, to let the people go. And we're going to see e each particular plague over the next few chapters. But it's important to understand that each plague in its own way was a specific demonstration of God's power over the idols that Egypt worshipped. I mean, don't think that these plagues were just arbitrary. I mean, they were all pretty horrible. But they weren't just arbitrary. Each one made a point. And the point it made was that Israel's God, the true God, was far superior to the demonic idols of the Egyptians. All right. And uh, we're, we're still here in chapter 7. And in this chapter, we get plague number one, when the Lord turns the river Nile to blood. Nice one. Now then, the point of that, the push behind it, is that the Egyptians worshipped the River Nile. See? 
So a demonstration of God's power over the idols that Egypt worshipped, because they worshipped the river Nile, and it's turned into blood. However, the magicians copy that plague. All right? So, so you're on to kind of 15 all on that one. In chapter 8, we get plagues 2, 3, and 4. Plague number 2 was a plague of frogs. Now, can anyone guess why? Well, I'll tell you, because the Egyptians worship frogs. And now, suddenly, there are frogs wherever you turn. Frogs all over the place. But this plague of frogs, having come and then gone, the magicians copy it. And they produce a plague of frogs of their own. So, still, like, kind of 30 all there. Now then, plagues three and four kind of came very quickly, you know, like rat tat tat, because it was gnats and flies. First of all, these gnats appeared, and then all these flies appeared. So it was two separate plagues, but virtually coming at the same time. So plagues three and four. Now, the significant thing about gnats and flies is that gnats and flies are a particular pain to one particular sort of animal, and that is cows. You know, anytime you want to go and look at cows, you know, they're surrounded by gnats and flies, aren't they? Now then, the Egyptians worshipped the cow. Of all the animals they could have chosen, they particularly worshipped the cow. And uh, so, so the gnats and the flies came, and then they went. Now, the magicians set out to copy it, and they couldn't. And now, the magicians drop out of the contest, because they try, but they cannot copy any of the plagues that happen from now on. And they actually tell Pharaoh, these are Pharaoh's own personal magicians, they say to Pharaoh, look, you know, the Lord God is working. There's a power far, far greater here than anything we can handle. So Pharaoh now gets told by his own occultist, look, you're up against the Lord God of Heaven here, so just just be, be careful. And uh, what, what happens now is that after each plague, Pharaoh agrees to let the people go. And he says to Moses now, no, that's all right, I'll let them go, I'll let them go. But then, when the plague ends, he goes back on his word. So, so the, the plague will come, and it freaks him out, and he says, all right, you can go. And then the plague vanishes, and he says, no, no, I'm keeping you. You can't go. Now we come on to chapter 9, and, and we've got plagues 5, 6, and 7. And uh, pl plague number 5 um, is that you get pestilence, which, which is sort of like, you know, disease, really. And it comes on horses, donkeys, camels, sheep, and goats as well as cows. Now, all those animals also represented deities that uh, the Egyptians worshipped. But the interesting thing is that this pestilence didn't come on any of the Israelis' animals. I mean, although they were in slavery, they still had animals and stuff like that. The Israelites were untouched by this plague, but all the, um, you know, the, the, you know, sort of like horses, donkeys, camels, blah, 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 of the Egyptians got struck by this pestilence, but not Israelis. Then, plague number six, um, was a plague of boils on both men and the animals that they owned. So that plague was that now the idolaters are struck along with the animal deities that they worship. You know, so I mean, you know, this is like the equivalent, you know, not, not, you know, not only does your god fall ill, but you catch it as well. You know, that, that's the kind of the situation that, that, that you've got here. So, I mean, all, the, all, all this is pretty heavy stuff, and, and Pharaoh's saying, yes, it's all right, I'll let you go, and then the plague passes, and he says, no, no, you can't go. And then you get plague number seven, which was, was a hailstorm that was unlike anything anyone had ever seen. You know, I mean, the, these were bowling balls falling from the sky. I mean, it, it was 
I mean, Egypt had never seen anything like it. And, uh, and that they believed that behind every weather event, there was a god working. You know, so there was a god of rain, a god of this, that, and the other, and, uh, you know, and sort of like, you know, what we would call meteorological phenomena, they saw as the actions of various gods who were behind the weather. And so the fact that you get freak weather happening at the control of Moses and Aaron, again, was speaking of the superiority of the God of Israel over all these gods and deities and stuff that the Egyptians were into. And, uh, but no hail fell on the Israelites. You know, so I mean, the point is either where they lived or where they were working. The Israelites were completely exempt from these plagues. So again, a real demonstration of the power of God. And, um, and of course, what's happening here with, with Pharaoh, we're specifically told, is that he is hardening his own heart. He is becoming determined more and more, I'm not going to give in to this God of Israel. Even though he's beating me, left, right and centre, I'm not going to give in to him. And then what's interesting is that the Bible tells us that then, Pharaoh having hardened his own heart, then God starts hardening his heart. Because, because <laughs> I'll say that again, because of course, if you're determined to stand against God, but God is doing all these plagues and the miracles, and he's just piling them on one after the other, the point is that, that, that a normal human being would just crumble against their own will. But God actually strengthens Pharaoh to give him the strength to stand against him, even in the face of all this power, which is what, of his own free will, he wanted to actually do. So, that was chapter 9. Now we move on to chapter 10, and we got plagues 8 and 9. Now, plague number 8 was uh, locusts. And uh, locusts in the ancient world, and Egypt as well, were, were, were seen as, as, as the judgment of your God, um, precisely because it was so devastating. I mean, a plague of locusts could destroy the harvest in a few days. And so its agricultural and knock-on economic effect on a nation was absolutely catastrophic. And uh, so a plague of locusts, uh, you know, again, would have spoken volumes to, uh, you know, to the Egyptians about, you know, what the God of Israel was, was doing um, in, in regards to them. And then the ninth plague was uh, three days of darkness. The, you know, the light of the sun was extinguished for three days. Again, significance because Egypt worshipped the sun. So again, at all points, you have God making a point to the Egypts about the idols that they worshipped and showing the utter futility and powerlessness of their idols up against his power as the one true God. And then in chapter 11, you get the announcement of the tenth plague. The actual plague doesn't fall yet, but you get the announcement of what the tenth plague is going to be. And it's the plague of the death of the firstborn. And what was going to happen here is that every firstborn son, from pharaohs at the top right down to the humblish, humblest Egyptian slave girls, every firstborn son was going to die, including the firstborn of all cattle. And that was the next judgment that was going to come upon Egypt. And what happens is that having announced that to Pharaoh, Moses and Aaron come away from him never to actually face him again. So their direct contact, once they've told him about this particular plague, uh, they come away from him and they don't actually see him anymore. 
And, uh, you know, there's been in the meantime, you know, at one point, you know, Pharaoh saying things like, well, I mean, yeah, you can, you can leave Egypt to worship as long as you come back. And he's been trying to come up with all these compromises, but to actually get out of what God is telling him to do. And so now Moses and Aaron, they've told him about the 10th plague. They just walk away from him and the plague comes on them very soon afterwards. And then in chapter 12, all in the light of this plague, the death of the firstborn, you have the institution of Israel's very first festival. And it's in the light of the coming death of the firstborn. And uh, it's the institution of the Passover. And from this point onwards, this particular feast that Israel is now told about through Moses kicks off their yearly calendar. So today, Israel's yearly calendar actually starts with this event, the Passover. Now, of course, what was going to happen is that imminently the angel of death was going to pass over Egypt and all the firstborn were going to die of, um, you know, of, of people and cattle as well. Now then, what Israel were told here was that each family were to sacrifice a lamb or a kid and they were to take its blood and they were to daub it on the lintels of their doors. So that having killed the lamb or the kid, they take the blood and they put it around, you know, like the frame um, of the doors of their houses. Then they were to roast the lamb and eat it. But they were to cook it in a particular way. They had to mix it with bitter herbs and unleavened bread. So they had to roast this lamb, but all the bitter herbs on it and serve it with bread that didn't have any leaven in. And, uh, and they were to do this dressed, ready for a journey. So they were to do it and to eat it, standing up with their sandals on, with, with their cloaks tucked into their belts. Now, what happened was they wore cloaks or, you know, like skirts, basically, didn't they? And, uh, you know, and the point is if you had to, you know, go walkies, sometimes, you know, sort of like having the long cloak, it'd be a bit of a pain. And so they wore a belt. And what they could do is that they could take the bottom of the garment and tuck it into the belt. And it's like in the New Testament, you get the time when Paul talks about gird up the loins of your mind and things like this. And it's a picture of gathering your skirts, as it were, tucking them into your belt so you're ready for action because your legs are free. And this was how the Israelites were to eat this particular feast. Now then, of course, the point is that as the angel of death passed through Egypt, slaying the firstborn all over the place, any house where the blood of the Passover lamb was seen would be spared the judgment of death. That was the idea of it. So the angels, seeing the blood of the lamb over the house, would pass by and not slay the firstborn. Then, having eaten this Passover meal, for the next seven days, they were to eat nothing with yeast in it. So that for the next seven days, there was to be no yeast eaten whatsoever. So, there you've got it, the very first feast that Israel was ever given by the Lord. The Feast of Unleavened Bread, which lasted for seven days, but kicked off with the Passover meal. And of course, the picture there, obviously, to be fulfilled and, and made very clear in later years, was Jesus dying on the cross as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And the point is that if, his, if you accept him as saviour, if his blood covers you, then the point is the angel of death, God's impending judgment, will pass you by. Absolutely no problem. 
you're no longer subject to the judgment of God. And what's significant is that that's a one-off thing, the actual Passover, but then the Feast of the Unleavened Bread that carries on for a week afterwards, the point is that leaven represented sin. So therefore it's saying, right, now, in the light of the fact that you've been saved, in the light of the fact that Jesus has taken away your sin, now get rid of any leaven in your life. Now live righteous and holy before the Lord. Can you see? And this picture was, was being given. Because remember, we've seen it before, haven't we? I've said that, you know, the Old Testament is the movie, but the New Testament is the script. And that in the Old Testament we have a kind of a living allegory in picture language, actual history, history, his story, God acting out all the truths of everything that we need to know in order to be saved. And uh, so what happened was that, 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 that here, this day that they eat the Passover, okay, at midnight that night, the angel of death passes all over Egypt and all the firstborn die. All the children, animals, everything, the firstborn. And what happens now is that the Egyptians rise up positively begging the Israelites to leave. And not only that, they give them all their jewellery and clothing and livestock. They're so frightened, they're, 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 they're so kind of low under God's judgment that they literally say to Israel, go, and not only that, here, take my jewellery, take my animals, take my what I've got and just go. And, you know, sort of, so God did it. And, you know, so now, all right, Pharaoh has been saying you can't go, now his people are begging them to go. And when this happened, and the next day Israel walked out, as a nation they just left Egypt, there were 600,000 and that was the men, not including the women and children. And that was a heck of a lot of them. And, uh, but they go out very, very rich, because the Egyptians have, have handed over all their riches to them. And what happens now is that they, they, they journey as far as a place called Succoth, which wasn't far away, but it was like between, you know, sort of like Egypt and the Red Sea. And, um, and then at the end of chapter 12, you just get a, a few more instructions from the Lord about how they were to kind of, you know, sort of uh, conduct future Passover meals, all right? So there you've got the Passover and unleavened bread instituted as a festival or a feast so that Israel would never forget the deliverance that God worked on them that particular day, all right? Now then, in chapter 13, all right, Israel are now at this place called Succoth, and, uh, and the Lord speaks to them, and they're told that every firstborn amongst them, by the Israelites, every firstborn child is now to be consecrated to the Lord from that time onwards. Now, a principle is established there, because remember, God's judgment had just come on Egypt on the firstborn. But because Israel was being saved by the Lord, and they did the lamb sacrifice and the blood and that, their firstborn were spared from the judgment. So, because their firstborn had been spared from the judgment that was to come, their firstborn were now to be consecrated to the Lord. And a principle emerges here that remains throughout Scripture, and it's simply this. Anything that escapes God's judgment automatically becomes his own personal property. Remember? the firstborn amongst the Israelites had escaped the judgment of the angel of death. Therefore, they are now consecrated to the Lord 
and become specifically belonging to him. So there's the principle. That which escapes the judgment of God becomes his property. Now, how does, you know, how does that relate to us? Simple as this. We've escaped God's judgment. We've become his property. We belong to the Lord. And there you have that principle. The firstborn are consecrated to the Lord. Then we get their, their, their continuing journey to the Red Sea. Not very long, this, just a few days. And, um, but what's happening, they don't know the way. They've got no one you know, particularly to lead them. What happens is that God goes before them in this massive pillar of cloud during the day. And uh, by night, there's a pillar of fire. So basically, what happens is, you know, that this, you know, Israel came to call it the Shekinah glory. That God leads them by a pillar of cloud in the day and a pillar of fire by night. And that was the sign of the fact that the Lord was leading them. That was how, if you like, the Lord was manifesting himself. It was, of course, the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit was manifesting himself in this visual way so that they knew how, which way to go in order to follow the Lord. Now, then, in chapter 14, you get the actual story of the crossing of the Red Sea. And, of course, what happens is that, you know, sort of like Moses is, is standing there by the Red Sea, you know, 600,000 Jews plus women and children standing behind him. Um, they're, they're now well aware, well aware that Pharaoh is, um, you know, sort of like, you know, decided that he's going to bring them back and slaughter them and stuff like that. So they're really in a jam. And uh, what they've got, Behind them is Pharaoh and his army coming to kill them. To their right are mountains that they can't get over. To their left is just infinite wilderness. And in front of them is a sea. Now, where do you go? I mean, that's being hemmed in, doesn't it? And we all know that the Lord hems us in sometimes to teach us to trust him. And what happens is that Moses turns to the Lord and says, Lord, you know, what are we going to do? And, and, and the Lord says to Moses, why are you crying to me? What are you crying out to me for? I've told you what to do. And Moses sort of like, you know, scratching it. What do you mean? And the point is, they knew where they were going to go. The Red Sea was in their way. But the point is, if you know where you've got to go, well, then God will overcome the obstacles, and you take that for granted. And this was a mistake. Moses was, you know, saying, oh, Lord, you know, what do you want us to do here? And the Lord, you know, sort of says, well, well, go across your twit. What do you think I want you to do here, you know? And, and so what he does is, is that he gets his staff, you know, which, which kind of like very much became the, the symbol of his authority, and he holds it out, and of course the Lord parts the Red Sea. And uh, so Israel, all of them, uh, go across on dry land. And, um, and of course, you know, by this time Pharaoh and his army are catching up, so they're, they're trotting through as well, and uh, at which point the, the, the Red Sea closes over them, and so Pharaoh and his entire army are now destroyed killed, drowned in the waters of the Red Sea. And so, so a, a picture here, again, back, back to more symbolism, uh, throughout the Bible is quite simply this, that Egypt is a picture of the world, the worldly state, the unregenerate condition before you were born again. Pharaoh, who ran Egypt, is Satan, a picture of the god of this world. And the slave masters, or the taskmasters, who used to whip the Israelites and make them work harder and harder, is a picture of our own personal sin, each one of us, because we are slaves to sin in our natural state. Now, of course, what happens is that there is deliverance through the blood of the Lamb at the Passover, when the angel of death strikes. And then there is a journey to a completely different life in which Satan's power and the power of sin have been dealt with completely. Because, of course, Pharaoh and all the taskmasters who are in the army, they're dead now. So they're gone. So it's a picture of 
becoming a Christian. It's a picture of crossing over from the old life, from the world, and crossing over into the kingdom of God. And of course, in the New Testament, this crossing of the Red Sea becomes a picture of being baptised. I mean, they went through dry land, but the point is the water was mounted up either side of them. And, and, and so, you know, the Bible talks about in the same way that we're baptised into Jesus, the fact that here Israel was baptised into Moses. Moses representing the saving power of God. So, in chapter 15, they're over the other side. They're safe. And uh, chapter 15 is, is, is sort of like, uh, it starts off with this song of praise uh, to God for the deliverance that, that, that he's, he's brought to them. And, uh, and then we have three days' journey into the wilderness. Now, the other side of the Red Sea, they're in the wilderness. And now, they journey into the wilderness for three days, but without any water. Now, food wasn't too much of a problem, because you can go quite a long time without food. It's just like I'm doing on this diet. Um, but you, you can't go too long without water. And, uh, you know, so, so they're travelling for three days without water. And uh, until eventually they come to a place where they find some water, stream or a river or something. But when they actually taste it, they discover that it's bitter, i.e. undrinkable. You know, something's wrong with it. It's contaminated or in, in, in some way. And, uh, you know, so, so now the people grumble. And, uh, you know, you get this repeated theme all through the wilderness wanderings. Oh, if only we could have been back in Egypt. Oh, if only we could have died there. Or, oh, you know, sort of, it, it seems, oh, what a wonderful life we had there, almost. And it's so ridiculous, because they didn't have a wonderful life. And, I mean, the point is, here they are, obviously, God is starting to teach them to trust him. Now, the reason they were grumbling was that if they don't get any water, they're facing death, all right? You might say a fair thing to grumble about. But the point is that one of the themes of their grumbling is, oh, we wish we died in Egypt. And that raises the question, what does it matter where you die? If your grumbling is because you're going to die, what has where you're going to die got to do with it? And this irrational moaning and grumbling and bitter complaining is a constant theme. And, you know, all of us in our own hearts, that's a cap we all have to wear sometimes, isn't it? It's a real sign of the, the sinful nature. But the Lord works a miracle and uh, cures the water, makes it drinkable again. So, so, so that was no problem. And then they travel on a bit further and they come to um, a place called Elim, which uh, was like an oasis and it had water and, um, you know, palm trees. And they, they settled there for, you know, for some time. That was a nice place to be. Then, chapter 16, we're now two and a half months into their journeys. So they've been pushing, you know, on. We're two and a half months since they've crossed the Red Sea now. So not, not, not you know, this is very much the beginnings of the wanderings in the wilderness. And um, they now come to what was called the Desert of Sin. Now, I've got to, to explain it. It's not the Hebrew word for sin. All right, that's, that's, that's a different word completely. The reason in your Bible that it's called the desert of sin is because it, it's just the Hebrew word that is used here, sin, is a straight transliteration of it into English. And it's there simply because the scholars don't know what the word means in the Hebrew. It doesn't mean sin, it only comes out sin because it's a transliteration. It's just a Hebrew word, they don't know what the meaning is. So because they can't translate it, they just transliterate it, all right? But 
in English, at any rate, it is prophetic. You know, I mean, it is highly symbolic because sin really undergirds everything that the um, wilderness wanderings were about. And of course, back to our symbolism. If you know, if kind of, if crossing the Red Sea is a picture of being baptized, then you've come out of Satan's kingdom and out of the world and into the kingdom of God. Then the point is that given that unleavened, you know, the feast of unleavened bread follows the Passover, I no leaven. The Lord starts dealing with sin. And that's what the wilderness is all about. That's what the Christian life is all about. You know, we're saved from our sin, but then the Lord wants to deal with our sin and, and so that we live holy lives. And so you've got this symbolism all the way through. And, um, and now the people get hungry. And, uh, you know, they'd have brought quite a lot of food out of Egypt. It's starting to run out and it's gone. And now they get hungry and so they, they moan against Moses and Aaron. Uh, you know, because often if you want to moan against God, one of the ways that it's easy to do it is moan against his leaders, obviously. Um, you know, as Robert always used to say, you can't bash God, can you? So bash his nearest representative instead. You know, so here the people, they moan against Moses and Aaron because Moses and Aaron are kind of like their leaders and they're kind of representing God to the speakers, uh, God to the people. And so, so what happens now is that, that, that God, first of all, he brings a load of quail along, uh, you know, birds, so they, they eat that, and that's, that's all very nice. And then he miraculously provides something called manna, which was bit like, like, like biscuit or... Well, in actual fact, the Bible can't quite describe what it was like. And uh, it was very nice. It was like honey, and it was all these things rolled together. And the reason it was called manna is because manna is the Hebrew word for what is it? And that's what it was called. Because, you know, like the manna came initially, and then it came every day for the rest of their wilderness wanderings for 40 years, it came every day. And they'd go out and gather it. And, you know, obviously the first couple of days you think, what is it? See? And, you know, a few, few days later you're saying, well, what is it? We still don't know what it is. And then you've got to say, well, look, what are we going to call this? I said, well, I know, let's call it, what is it? <laughs> you see? Because they didn't know what it was. So they called it manna, what is it? And it was basically their staple diet until they got into the promised land. Right, then, then we come on to, to chapter 17, they're still travelling, and they come to a place called Rephidim, and uh, they run out of water again. Remember, they'd have been storing water where there was water, and then when they were travelling where there wasn't water, they'd be using their provisions, and now their provisions have run out, and there's no more water, and so they, they moan. And then they pick a quarrel with Moses. So they moan against Moses and they try and have a fight with M Moses. And uh, so, so, so what happens now is that Moses strikes a rock with his staff and uh, out, out from underneath this rock, suddenly this river forms and all the water that they possibly need. And uh, so, so they called that particular place where the rock was, Massar and Meribah, and uh, they, they, they called it that because a uh, massa means testing, a uh, meribah means quarrelling. Because, of course, the whole point, God was testing them. He was dealing with them. So the point is, where you find Christians quarrelling, you've got God's testing. Always happens where you've got Christians quarrelling, you've got God's testing. Because it's God refining his people. And, uh, but when that happens, sin comes to the surface, and, of course, fellowship breaks down a bit. But that's part and part of it. We have to battle our way through that. Anyway, so they press on, but now a wandering nation called Amalek, or the Amalekites, decide to attack Israel and kind of destroy them. 
And what happens is that, 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 that God kind of tells Moses that, that rather than him actually fighting in this battle, he's to go up, you know, to a kind of, um, you know, onto this, you know, mountain where he could look down on the battle. And, um, and he was to, to, to hold his staff over his head. And what he found is that as long as he held the staff over his head, Israel was beating Amalek. But if he dropped the staff, Amalek started to beat Israel. And, uh, and of course, it's a picture of faith. As long as his staff represented his authority and his faith in God, as long as his faith was Godwards, all right, Israel won. But when his faith drooped and his arms came down and the staff came down, the enemy started to get the upper hand over Israel. So it was a picture, as God said to him, that the battle is mine, saith the Lord. It's not yours at all, it's mine. And of course the point is salvation was by faith, it wasn't ultimately, you know, it wasn't by us doing anything. And at rock bottom, our sanctification, our victory over Satan is by faith. It's realising the battle is the Lord's, it's not ours at all, it's his. But the point is, Moses, he's, you can only stand there with your arms in the air so long. Really, you know, sort of bad. And so Aaron, and I think someone else, can't remember who, what they did is that they got a stone, this big rock for him to uh, sit on, and then they held his arms up as well. So you've got two things there. You've got the rock, which is Christ, rest. You see, it's God doing it, it's not us. So Moses could sit down. Ha, oh, what a relief. And then you've got fellowship. They held his arms up for him. Oh, isn't it easier when you're in fellowship? What a fabulous picture of being part of fellowship and the rest. Of, of being in the Lord and knowing that, you know, if, if Jesus is sat down at the right hand of God the Father, then we can be sat down as well, you see? Because Jesus has done it all. So this this tremendous picture of the battle being the Lord's, and so um, eventually Israel kind of beats Amalek and they, they move on. Then in chapter 18, Jethro, or Ruel, do you remember? Moses' father-in-law, okay. Um, he, he kind of, you know, I mean, he's been travelling with them. He wasn't a Jew, but it doesn't matter. He's, he's with them. He's a believer. He knows the Lord. And uh, he kind of advises Moses, uh, you know, about how to set up leadership structures. Because, I mean, Moses is, is leading, I mean, 600,000 men. And that didn't include the women and children. That is, that is some congregation, isn't it? That is, that is some community to be leading. And so Jethro advises him that he's got to get some real organisation here. And basically advises him to set up a pyramid system where, you know, you had kind of like leaders over thousands and over hundreds and over fifties and over tens and then right at the top would be Moses, you know, for the really difficult judgments and decisions that people underneath him weren't able to make. And uh, that was absolutely right for Israel. That was, that was the God-given leadership system at that time. Uh, probably the most important thing to be say, you know, said about it is that when you come onto the New Testament, it is definitely not the leadership structure introduced in the church. But it was the leadership structure introduced in Israel at that time. So no, no problem. And so Moses institutes that as Jethro uh, was ad advising him to. Then we... Um, come on to chapter 19, and uh, now, now we're at Mount Sinai. They, they, they've arrived at this place called Mount Sinai. And um, God calls Moses up the mountain, you know, like, come up, come up here with me. And uh, so up Moses goes, and the Lord kind of reveals himself to him, etc., um, etc. Et and uh, what happens here is that, 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 that God establishes or, or reconfirms the Old Covenant 
with Moses, you know, sort of like says, I am going to make a covenant with you, all right? So this idea of the old covenant, the Mosaic law, now begins to emerge. And uh, Moses then, having been told that, pops back down the mountain and he tells the people that they're to purify themselves because God is going to form a, a covenant with them and they must purify themselves to get ready for a life of obedience to the Lord, all right? And then having told them that, he goes back up the mountain. Now then, the next chapter is the giving of the Ten Commandments to him, all right? So now, he's up the top of the mountain, all right? God is revealing himself to him, and uh, he actually gives the Ten Commandments. Uh, I don't think there's any need for us to actually go through them, is there? No, everyone knows them. And um, so there the actual Ten Commandments are given, um, followed by warnings against adultery, which, which was the main push behind the Ten Commandments. Ultimately, that Israel was to have no, no God except the Lord God of Israel. And uh, so strong warnings there against idolatry, at which point Moses builds an altar. So he's on top of the mountain, Mount Sinai, and he, he builds an altar there to the Lord. Now then, in, in chapters 21 to 23, um, we then have more laws given, because the Ten Commandments were only the first ten. Uh, we'll see more of this in, um, in future talks. And, and, um, but in chapters 21 to 23, we have various other laws. Um, and uh, you get the laws concerning slavery, um, concerning homicide, how you establish what is murder and what isn't, blah, blah, blah. Um, laws concerning personal injury, uh, you know, sort of how you, you know, if you've been injured by someone, how you get restitution, blah, blah, blah. Uh, laws concerning property damage, uh, society in general, and uh, justice and neighbourliness. You get a whole string of laws um, in these chapters. Uh, we saw, do you remember in the Law and Grace series, we saw this in a bit more detail, and we, we went through the various areas that the, the, the law covered, didn't we? And uh, then you, you get the laws on the Sabbath day, um, then you get the laws on the Sabbath year, because there was to be a Sabbath year when all the, all the fields were to lie fallow. No one was to grow anything, and, and it's like, you know, because the land was lying unused, therefore, for instance, in the Sabbath year, the poor could go in and help themselves to what was left of the crops, you know, part of their social security system. And uh, then you get three annual festivals established here. Uh, we're going to see these uh, in greater detail when we get into Leviticus uh, next time. But uh, nevertheless, in these verses you get the, 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 you know, more on the institution of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which kicks off with the Passover meal, already seen that. You get the Feast of Harvest, um, also called the Feast of Weeks. Uh, weeks, because week in the Hebrew is the same word as seven. Um, because it came seven weeks after unleavened bread. So there you've got the Feast of Harvest or, um, or Feast of Weeks. And it was later, came to be called Pentecost. Pente from 50, because it was the 50th day after the Passover. So Harvest, Feast of Weeks or Pentecost. That was um, the annual festival number two there. And then number three, the Feast of Ingathering or Tabernacles. We're going to see these in the next talk and what, what, what they mean and everything. Uh, the Feast of Ingathering is the third one here, uh, called Tabernacles or Booths, because during that feast they, they all had to live in uh, temporary shelters. 
and uh, you know, sort of like all to all to do with the fact that when God brought them out of Egypt, they were living in tents in the wilderness, and there's a feast there to commemorate that, and we'll we'll, we'll see more on that um, next time. And uh, then you get God's promise at the end of a. Uh, of chapter 23 that um, he would be going before them into Canaan and that he would enable them to drive the Canaanites out of the promised land. Remember, they're not just heading out of Egypt, they've done that, they're heading into a land of their own, the land that God had promised Abraham, you know, what, five, 500 odd years before. And that's where they're heading. But they know full well that it's full of Canaanites, inhabited and not very nice people either, but here God gives his promise that he was going to go before them and that he would drive out the Canaanites from before them. Then, chapter 24, uh, this covenant of the Ten Commandments, well, all the others as well, the old covenant, is, is confirmed to the people. It's well and truly established now. And the people are sprinkled with blood. And, and, and the, you know, blood, sacrifices are made and blood are thrown over them and this symbolises that they are entering into this covenant of obedience to the laws that God is giving. And uh, so obviously Moses has come down the mountain to do that, do chuck the blood everywhere, confirm the covenant, and then he goes back up the mountain, all right, because God's got even more things that he wants to, uh, to tell him. And uh, Moses goes up the mountain and he's there for another 40 days. And um, then in, in, in chapters 25 to 31, uh, you, you have the next lot of instructions that he was receiving from God while he was up there for that 40 days. And it was to do with the building of the tabernacle. Now, the, the tabernacle was a portable temple. And the idea is that they carry this through their wanderings. And, you know, every time they... they pitch camp somewhere, they'd erect the tabernacle, which was the tent, you know, the kind of a temporary uh, portable temple, and God would kind of move in, and that God would live amongst them, but in the tabernacle. So this next section, all the instructions concerning the tabernacle, you know, sort of like tremendously important, and, uh, you know, also not just the tabernacle, but the priesthood who were going to run the tabernacle. So we'll just have a, have a look at this. So in chapter 25, all right, uh, the, on, onto the tabernacle here, and um, we get kind of like, you know, sort of descriptions of what it's going to be like. And uh, in chapter 25, the Lord tells Moses that, that all the materials have got to be provided through free will offering. And, uh, you know, so sort of like the people, not tithes, nothing like that, but free will offering. Of course, the point being, this was to be somewhere for God to live. Now, ultimately... I mean, the tabernacle, the temple, where God was going to live, was ultimately a picture of Jesus, because in him, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Jesus was the ultimate temple of the Holy Spirit. But then also, we are the temples of the Holy Spirit, as the church corporately, but you and I individually. Now, the point is, if you and I are a tabernacle or a temple of the Lord, then the point is, we've provided that of our own free will. Because if someone becomes a Christian, it's their own free will. And therefore, the tabernacle was going to be made from the free will gifts of the people. Now then, the first thing that gets described isn't the actual tabernacle, it's the things in it. So we'll cover them first. And uh, the three main things in the tabernacle was the ark, the table, and the golden candlestick. Now let's, let's do the ark first. The ark is a box. Basically, when you get an ark in the Bible, the idea of it is that it's like a jewellery box. It, it, it's something to put your valuables in. That's what an ark was in the ancient world. So, the flood, Noah's ark. Why? Well, there was a family of believers, God put his valuables in. See, in the ark. 
you and I are in the ark of Jesus' salvation. You know, sort of like our, our lives are hid with Christ in God. Jesus is our ark. And God puts his valuables in Jesus. In Jesus. So you and I are in Jesus, you see. And uh, so this ark was, was sort of like a box and it represented the old covenant. And it, it, was, it was three and three quarter feet long, all right, uh, two and a half feet wide and two and a half feet high. So it was sort of like, you know, that kind of, you know, sort of like dimensions. And what happened was that a pot of manna was to be put in it because that signified... God providing for them through the wilderness. Um, a copy of the Ten Commandments was to go in there, the actual stones, because remember there were two, all right, and uh, so they were to go in there as well. And uh, eventually Aaron's staff, and uh, later on, you know, something happened in regards to that, but the staff that Aaron covered, uh, carried was to go in there as well. So you had the pot of manna, all right, that signified, you know, the fact that God provides. You had the Ten Commandments signifying the law and the covenant, you know, between God and his people. And you see, there were two copies. There was Moses' copy and there were God's copy. See, you got a copy each, and it was God's copy that went in here. And then Aaron's staff, which was a picture of the authority of human leadership. And uh, the, the lid was gold. So, and the lid was called the mercy seat. And what happened was that in sacrifices, the blood that would be sprinkled for the forgiveness of sins would be chucked all over the mercy seat by the lid of the ark. And what that blood did is it, it, it turned, because this was a seat, you know, sort of like, you know, the idea God was sitting on it, you know. Uh, you know, because it's like you've got a box and you put your valuables in it and you sit on it so no one can get in. You see, that, that's, that's the picture. And it would turn a throne of judgment or a seat of judgment into a throne of grace or a seat of grace. That, that was the idea. It was on the mercy seat where the blood was sprinkled that God's judgment against you turned into God's grace and love for you. That was the idea of it. So that was the actual ark and that was like in what was called the Holy of Holies. Um, then you got the table. Now, this was called the... The, the table of the bread of the presence, and you had 12 loaves of specially prepared bread, and the bread represented the presence of God, the bread of the presence. Do you remember Jesus came along, I'm the bread of the world? You see? So, therefore, um, you know, this table represented Jesus. And there were 12 loaves, all right, which pictured one loaf for each of the tribes of Israel, a picture of fellowship, the church there, corporately, because we have our individual thing with Jesus, but also we have a corporate family, and, and both those aspects are, are tremendously important. And this bread of the presence could only be eaten by the priests, not the people. That's tremendously important. And, of course, the point is, when we become Christians, like, remember Jesus said, you've got to eat me, eat my body, drink my blood. Now, the point is, that bread could only be eaten by the priests. Well, you and I can feed on Jesus because we're priests, see? We're all priests, if we know him. And uh, so that pictured Jesus being the bread of life. And then the golden candlestick, which was a seven-branch thing, and it's virtually become like the symbol of, you know, of Judaism. And, of course, that pictured Jesus the light of the world because the candles, you know, would be lit. And there was the light, Jesus, the light of the world. So that was, you know, the actual things in the actual tent and uh, and then in chapters 26 and 27 we get a description of the actual tabernacle itself so i've got to try and describe what this portable tent temple was so um you've got a picture it was rectangular okay and it was 150 foot feet long and it was 75 feet wide so it was twice as long as it was wide so that's, that's fairly big, 150 feet by 75 feet, okay? And what you had, you had all these posts, 
So picture 175 foot, 150 foot by 75 foot, you've got all these posts in the ground. And joined to all these posts a curtain after curtain after curtain after curtain. So this tabernacle was draped curtains on posts. Because remember, it was portable. They had to be able to take it down and put it up really quickly. And it didn't have a roof. It was open to the sky. All right. And inside, at one end, it had a smaller tent. So you've got this main tent, all right, all the curtains. And then inside, at one end, you've got the smaller tent. And uh, it was inside that smaller tent that you had the ark and the table of the bread of, of the presence and um, the golden candlestick. And they were in this little tent inside the big tent. And that little tent was called the Holy of Holies. And it was behind this veil. And the only person who could go in was the high priest. And that was only once a year. All right. Now then, up the other end, all right, completely open to the sky, because the Holy of Holies was covered, you know, that had like, you know, a mini roof, as it were. But up the other end was the actual altar where all the sacrifices were made, alright? So you've got the big tent, curtains draped over poles, then at one end you've got the little tent, the Holy of Holies, with all the gubbins in, and then the other end is the actual altar where all the sacrifices were actually made, and then the blood was taken into the Holy of Holies. Now then, in chapters 28 and 29, you get, you know, uh, all the priest stuff, because of course the tabernacle had to be run by somebody, and it was run by the priests. And uh, so in chapter 28 and 29, you get instructions about the priesthood. Remember, all this being given by God to Moses um, up there on Mount Sinai. And uh, God tells him that the priests are to be Aaron and his sons and his descendants. So, and, and Aaron is going to be the high priest. So that's, that's how it kind of kicks off. And uh, you get, get details about their, their clothing, all right? Now, first of all, you get kind of like the high priest and, you know, Aaron, and he was going to wear something called an ephod. Now, I've got to try and describe what an ephod is. It's, um, it's, it's, it's like an apron, you know, sort of vestment, like, you know, a long apron. And uh, it, it, it's sort of worn underneath this breastplate, all right? And this breastplate had shoulder straps, all right? And also, there was this girdle or belt, all right, that was worn over a robe. So the ephod was those things together, which when you, you know, when the high priest put it on, it kind of, he, he was wearing all that over the standard robe that all the priests wore. Now then, each shoulder strap had an onyx stone set in it. So obviously, if you're wearing something, you've got a shoulder strap over each shoulder. And this onyx stone was set in gold, and on one was engraved six tribes of Israel, and on the other one was inscribed the other six tribes of Israel. So one, you know, sort of like, you know, two straps, but uh, all of God's people, all right. And uh, the, the actual breastplate that, that he wore is like a shield, you know, sort of rank organisation, you know, with that giant gong, you know, be like them, a smaller one of them. And it was all encrusted with precious stones and that, and each, each, it had 12, and each precious stone represented a different tribe of Israel. So this had 12 precious stones, all different, representing the tribes of Israel. Now, also, there was something called Urim and Thummim. Now, Urim and Thummim are the, are the Hebrew words for lights and perfections. 
Now, scholars don't know anything more than that. It was something to do with the breastplate, but that's all they know. And God spoke through the high priests Urim and Thummim. But outside of that, it's lost to history. No one quite knows what it was, so I can't say any more about that. Now then, the robe of this ephod, all right, it had bells dangling down on it. And, um, and the reason it had bells is that because when the high priest once a year was going to enter into the Holy of Holies to make the sacrifice for the sins of the people, if God accepted the sacrifice, okay, then the high priest and the people were right. But if God didn't accept it, then the high priest was killed. God killed the high priest. So what happened was that he had these bells on so that the people who were outside the Holy of Holies, they were listening out for the jingling of the bells. And if the jingling of the bells stopped, they knew that the high priest was dead and that they all had it. You see, did God accept the sacrifice? If the high priest's bells stopped jingling, he was dead, he wasn't moving. Oh no, the Lord hasn't accepted the sacrifice. So that's why the bells are on there. And I don't know whether that's got something to do with things having bells on, whether that's where the phrase comes from, but, uh, you know, could, could well be. And uh, he had a gold head plate as well, and uh, that was inscribed with a ho holy to the Lord. And, uh, you know, sort of, and then everything else he was wearing was just like the standard, you know, sort of uh, stuff that the ordinary priests wore. And uh, then, then in the, the last part of chapter 39, you have the actual consecration of the priests and uh, how they were to be prepared and anointed for their ministry. And uh, then you actually get details of a... Oh, did I say 39? I meant 29. <laughs> and then right at the end of chapter 29, you actually get details of a special diet that the priests were to eat. That even their diet was to be different from the people because they were representing God to the people. And the point is that you and I, because we're priests, we're to be totally different from anyone else. You see, every believer is a priest. In the kingdom of God, you don't have priests and laity, and it's the priests who are special. In the kingdom of God, in the church of Jesus Christ, we're all priests, we're all special, but we're all on this special diet. You see, we're not like everyone else. We've been separated from the world. Our standards are higher. It's as simple as that. Anyway, then in chapter 30, you get instructions for the altar of incense. These are all kind of things to do with the tabernacle worship. You, you get the teaching about the ransom money. Ransom money could be paid to, you know, sort of get forgiveness for certain sins. All the picture there of, you know, Jesus dying as a ransom, blah, blah, blah. You get the bronze washing basin where they had to wash their hands and you get the anointing oil and the incense. They're all technicalities. I'm not going to go into that. Then in chapter 31, you have two, two guys mentioned, Bezalel and Oholiab. All right, have you got names like that? It's, it's just as well you get mentioned, isn't it, really? But Bezalel and Oholiab, they are called by God to be the chief workmen on the tabernacle. So these are the two guys who are going to oversee the actual making of the tabernacle and the priest's clothes, etc., etc. And um, an actual fact, in this chapter, we have the first mention in the Bible, the first reference of anyone being filled with the Holy Spirit. And it's in reference to Bezalel. We're told that Bezalel in this chapter is filled with the Spirit. And it's fascinating that it's not for prophecy, it's not for healing, it's not for preaching, but it's for practical labour of the hands. And that I think is incredibly important. Because, um, you know, I mean, one of the, you know, burdens that I've often had, you know, especially in this era of the charismatic movement and that, you know, when there's you know, kind of emphasis on the gifts of the Holy Spirit, which is quite right. But you'll find that 90% of the time, 
the emphasis is on the supernatural, you know, the, the very dramatic ones in 1 Corinthians 12, in the first 12 or 14 verses, that that's where the emphasis lies. But the point is there are other gifts, the gifts of helps, which are all to do with practical labour, helping people, but it's a gift of the Holy Spirit. And that our practical, the practical work of our hands needs to be anointed as well. And, 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 and sort of like, you know, praying that God will use us and gift us in such a way that we can do practical work to bless other people. So, you know, I think that, that, that's, you know, amazing that the first reference of being filled with the Spirit was in regards to practical labour, you know, the actual construction of the tabernacle. And uh, then also in this chapter you get the Sabbath law restated, because of course that was tremendously important. And then God gives Moses the two tablets of stone um, on which the law was written, two copies, one for God and one for Moses. And obviously the point was that God's copy, although given to Moses, was uh, destined to end up in the ark, in the tabernacle. Right, now then, chapter 32, having got all these instructions and, you know, Bezalel and Oholiab having been anointed, blah, 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 Moses now comes down from the mountain. And he comes down from the mountain, remember he's been up there 40 days, to find Israel worshipping a golden calf and behaving abominably. They're drunk, they're being immoral, it's an orgy, it's unbelievable. And what happens is that Moses, he gets this golden calf. It wasn't that they were worshipping an idol other than the Lord their God, but what they've done is they've said, well, have the golden calf represent the Lord, which is still idolatry. And what happens is Moses grinds this golden calf up and he puts it in water and he makes them all drink it. It sort of like, you know, sort of teaches them, you know, a lesson. And Aaron, now Aaron, all right, you know, sort of just, just about to be anointed as high priest and leader of the people in Moses' absence, all right. I mean, you know, sort of Moses has been going along. In fact, Moses has made this for them. You know, um, uh, sorry, Aaron has made this for them. And Moses says, you know, what, you know, what are you doing? You know, and, and Aaron is all these lame excuses. But he virtually said that, you know, well, I got all their earrings and all their jewellery and I sort of like threw it in the pot and, well, this came out. You know, almost as if, well, what's it to do with me? And the most hopeless excuses that Aaron makes when it was just straight idolatry and rebellion against the Lord. And, uh, you know, Moses intercedes for them because God says, let me wipe them out, Moses. And Moses says, no, Lord, no, have mercy on them. So God has mercy on them. But, um, you know, sort of Moses gets the two tablets of stone and he destroys them. He smashes them. And, of course, the point is, the law has been broken even before it's God's finished giving it. Because, of course, salvation isn't by the law. The law, you remember from our Law and Grace series, was only given to show you that if you're going to be saved, it's got to be a covenant that is a gift from God. It can't be a covenant that depends on you doing, you know, your bit. Because we can't do our bit. We're sinners. And what happens here, the Levites step forward. And remember, Aaron is a Levite. And they carry out God's judgment on their fellow Jews. And they start putting some people to death. And uh, because of that, God makes them the priestly tribe. So the point is that Aaron and his sons are going to be the priests, but the whole of the tribe of Levi are going to be the priestly assistants. And what happens is, to be a priest, you had to be in the line of Aaron, but if you were a Levite, you were a priestly assistant, and you also had a part to play in the priesthood. And, um, you know, and then the Lord sends a plague amongst the people, and so many of them die in that, you know, as God's judgment for the golden calf. Then, then you get chapters 33 and 34. Now you get here... The fact that, that Moses would go in, you know, he had his own tent, they all had their tents and that, and that Moses would often go into his tent. And the Bible says that God spoke to him face to face as a man speaks to his friend. That's a lovely thought, and that, that's how the Lord wants to be with us. 
He wants to speak with us face to face as a man speaks with his friend, which is rather nice. Then you get the thing when the Lord puts Moses in the cleft of the rock and passes by, and you know Moses sees his back. Weird story that, really strange. You know, read that sometimes. Or is it God the Father? He seems to come over as God the Father, but God is spirit, doesn't have a body. Strange that, can't go into that, weird. But then you can't expect to understand everything when it comes to the law, can you? Then you get kind of the restoration of the law, all right, the judgments have passed, and, uh, you know, the law writes out replacement tablets of stone for the Ten Commandments. See, Moses has broken them, but God writes them out again. He says, look, you know, here's another copy. We'll start again, you see, which, of course, that's, that's what forgiveness is, isn't it? And, uh, you know, and, and, and the feasts and the Sabbath laws are all restated um, in those chapters. So, so here Moses is back up the mountain again, and he comes down. And this time, the second time he comes down, his face is, is shining. He's shining, all the people cower away from him because his face is shining with the glory of the Lord. And so he puts a veil over it. So that happened the second time he came down with the law. And uh, then you get chapters 35 through to chapter 39, and that, that, that's the actual assembling of the tabernacle and the making of the priest's clothes and everything. So that's just all the, the details there, nothing for us to particularly uh, go into. And then in chapter 40, the tabernacle is finished and it's erected, it's put up, so now it's standing there at Sinai, where they're staying. And what happens is the Shekinah glory, this, you know, sort of like column of smoke by night and column of fire by, no, fire by, a column of fire by night and a column of smoke by day. What happens is the tabernacle is erected and completed and this column now moves and it sits over the tabernacle. And what that is, is God saying, right, I, I, I'm living amongst you and the tabernacle is my home. You've got your tents Here's mine. See? And, 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 you know, that's great, isn't it? Because what happened 2,000 years ago? It's interesting. Paul, in Corinthians, refers to the human body as a tent. And what God says, right, you've got your tent, human bodies, right, I'm going to have mine. And he became human. He took on a human body. You see the symbolism of the incarnation here? Israel all had their tents. Now God's got his. What's, what's good enough for us is good enough for him. Now that, that's the condescension and the humility of God, who feels all of heaven and the whole universe, he feels it all. But he says, no, you're restricted to living in these little blah blah blah, so I'm going to come and live in these little blah 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 with you. And of course, ultimately, he took on human form, he became a man. So, you know, incredible picture there. So God is moving in and living in the tabernacle. And uh, so there, we're at the end of Exodus, and uh, we're, we're a few months into the wilderness wanderings, and, and, and thus far they've come to Mount Sinai, all right? Israel is a mighty nation, 600,000, and that's just the men, all right? And so they've come to Sinai, they're at the beginnings of the wilderness wanderings, all right? And uh, obviously they're still heading through the wilderness on the way to Canaan, the land that is going to become their actual home. But they've got the law now, the covenant between God and Israel is established. And um, next time, when we go to Leviticus, we're not actually going to be continuing narrative history. That picks up again in, in numbers. But next time, we're going to see in much more detail all the feasts, what they mean, the priesthood, etc., etc., and it's only after we've done that, that in numbers, you get really the next, you know, you get the rest of their 40-year wanderings in the wilderness.
So the actual history is that here, in the book we've done tonight, out of Egypt up to Mount Sinai, and Leviticus forgets about the history and just homes in on what it all means and their laws. Then in Numbers we'll pick up the history again and we'll see the rest of their 40-year wanderings in the wilderness. And then in Deuteronomy, the last book of the Pentateuch, in that book we see Moses restating their law and prior history on the eve of them going in to the Promised Land and actually taking control of it. So, next time we will uh, detailed look at priesthood, feasts, etc., etc. in Leviticus. So, we'll finish there.